Our scripture reading for today comes from the letter to the Philippians, the third chapter, the fourth through eleventh verses. Hear these words. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We're in a sermon series right now focused on how we grow on purpose. Where our primary image is that of plants, like maybe the ones you've seen here uh, around our building. I love that image. I find it to be so profound, everything from the roots to the leaves. It just connects to our faith journey in so many ways. But I have a little dilemma, because the only thing I can successfully do with plants is kill them. Not intentionally. Uh, but I've tried so hard to grow plants, and I have made every mistake possible. So I will talk about plants later to give you another image. But in order to start in any reasonably hopeful mood here, I will not share any of my own. Instead, I figured I'd start with physics. Still in the science category, but just a little different. Um, I hope your own physics classes in high school or college were better than mine. I learned nothing in high school physics except how much water comes out of those emergency showers in science schoolrooms that help clean you off if you get chemicals on you. Uh, when one of my friends pulled it as a prank, and it's a surprisingly large amount of water if you just keep holding on to it. I say that to share I am not trained in physics by a long shot, but I think it is incredibly valuable in understanding our world and our lives. So as an adult, I've spent a lot of time trying to catch up and learn. That means I'm probably gonna get something wrong here, but I wanna focus on something called the observer effect. And at the risk of oversimplifying it, the concept I'm interested in here is that when we measure something, we change it. Physicists discovered this when trying to observe and measure tiny subatomic particles. And when they shone a light on the particle or whatever else they might have done to learn more about where it is and how it is moving, the act of measuring it caused it to change. 
And the observer effect is very significant at the subatomic level. A tiny, tiny electron is going to be very impacted by even the tiniest changes around it. But I think we can also see something similar at work on a bigger scale. Like when you check your tire pressure in your cars or bicycle, that frustrating moment of all the air escaping when you put the gauge on the valve just to see if there's enough air pressure in there to begin with, measuring something changes it in that situation. And I think we can take it one step further. The way that we measure something impacts the kind of result that we'll get. Sticking with the car example, if you accidentally start using a measure of kilometers per hour rather than miles per hour, you are probably going to have a bit of anxiety when you finally <laughs> recognize what's going on because the way we measure something changes it. Still with me? Still think this is a sermon about growth in Philippians? Uh, if a train of thought carrying the observer effect leaves Dallas at 8 a.m. going 50 miles per hour, and a train of thought carrying Paul's writing to the Philippians leaves Alan at 8.30 a.m. going 40 miles per hour, when will they meet? <laughs> and actually, it's probably a moot point if the plaques at the stoplights here in Allen have anything to say. That train's going to get robbed in Allen, where that first Texas train robbery <laughs> took place anyway. So now that I've managed to make a confusing comparison even more confusing, let's turn this train in the right direction. <laughs> My understanding of the observer effect is that the way we measure something impacts what it becomes. And my understanding of what Paul is saying in Philippians is that the way he has measured his life impacts what it is. For most of his life, Paul identified in the ways that he listed at the beginning of the passage you just heard. A member of the people of Israel, a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, zealous to the point of persecuting those that he thought were distorting his faith, blameless under the law. He valued those things. He understood them. He understood himself in relation to those markers. He measured his life along these lines and became that kind of person. Another way to say it is he abided in those markers of identity. But then Paul had a change of heart. He met the risen Christ and saw that how he had been measuring his life was leading in the wrong direction. He had been abiding in the wrong things. And as he says in Philippians, he then regarded all those things that he had based his life on as a loss. So he changed how he started measuring his life. Now his identity was in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And when he measured things that way, it changed who he was. What we abide in guides our growth. Who we become is so closely tied to how we measure what is valuable about ourselves. It's a little like the stakes that are used to help guide plants and trees that are growing. Yes, here's the one plant imagery that I can confidently use in this sermon. Young plants often have to be tied to those stakes to ensure that they grow in the right direction. And in doing that, the plants abide or dwell with that support in order to grow the best way possible. And if we change the measure of that stake, it will change the direction and growth of that tree. Now, I think the work of a tree abiding with its stake is a little simpler than our own lives. But at the end of the day, we are all abiding in something. Because abiding just means living or dwelling with something, acting in accordance with it. And that's something that all living things do. 
But it matters that we use the right stakes to abide with, that we measure our lives with something that will lead us to the best growth, something Paul found not in all those accolades he had collected throughout his life, but rather in Christ. And not just in Christ, but in Jesus' death and resurrection. When we turn all this back on us, when we think about how we abide with God and grow well, I want to first warn us against thinking it's a simple statement of virtues. Abiding for growth is not a matter of live right and all will be well. Because Paul's life was far from easy. It was full of suffering, as he mentions in this passage. There's no guarantee here that abiding with Christ will lead to bright, sunny days all the time. If Jesus did not even get that, I don't think we can count on it. Abiding with Christ also is not just about hanging with the right crowd. The Pharisees were just as much the right crowd as anyone else, and that was still not the key for how Paul could best abide for growth. What we are after is something much deeper. Paul is saying that to abide in the growth that God hopes for us, we have to stay connected to the things that seem to be discarded or not valuable, things like the death of a troublemaking rabbi. And really that abiding for growth is about understanding our core identity. Abiding for growth then is not about the superficial things of life, what we do or where or who we hang out with. Abiding for growth is about how we understand and measure our very selves. And I think the pastor, professor, and writer Henry Nouwen put it in the best, most simple way possible. Nouwen lived through the 1900s working in several universities in the United States and ultimately dedicating much of his life to the L'Arche communities who minister with those with disabilities in Canada. His writings are some of the most profound and easy-to-read books on faith that I have ever encountered. And in one of those, titled The Way of the Heart, he draws upon the wisdom of the desert fathers and mothers, who were Christian monks who fled to the desert in the 4th through 6th centuries. If you want to know more about them, you can ask one of the members of our men's group here at Sun Creek, uh, because they recently had an absolutely wonderful presentation on these figures of faith. Or you can ask me, because I was the one who gave that absolutely wonderful presentation on the topic of humility. Maybe I should rephrase some of that. But anyway, Nouwen writes these insightful words in that book. Our identity, our sense of self is at stake. The false self is the self which is fabricated by social compulsions. Compulsive is indeed the best adjective for this false self. It points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? I am the one who is liked, praised, admired, disliked, hated, or despised. Whether I am a pianist, a businessman, or a minister, what matters is how I am perceived by my world. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, I will have to make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing, and the steady urge to prevent this by gathering more of the same, more work, more money, more friends. So in describing this false self, we see some echoes of the observer effect and Paul's insight. Now in is saying that if we measure ourselves by busyness or money or approval, that is what we abide with and that is how we will grow. 
Paul did that with his education and commitment to his beliefs. And he got so wrapped up in that false self that the only thing that shocked him out of it was a blinding light from heaven, a meeting with Jesus, and some time alone to figure it all out. Hopefully we won't need all that drastic stuff, but it is still so, so tempting to abide in what Nouwen calls the false self. And we need a way to let it go so that we can begin to observe ourselves in a new way, a way that helps us abide in God's love alone. Because what we abide in guides our growth. So take a moment right now and consider what it is you really abide in. Not necessarily who you hang out with or what you spend time doing, though there may be some overlap here. But consider what you really use as the primary support or measuring stick of your life. You don't have to tell anyone. You don't have to write it down. I just want you to be as honest with yourself as you can be. What is it that you use to value your life? Is it doing well in school or a sport or an art? Or performing well at your job? Is it how much money you make or the accolades and awards you receive? Is it the way your kids behave? Or is it the expectation of your parents? Is it your mood or the kind of energy you bring into a place? Is it how many people you help? Is it how perfect you are able to make things? I would bet we all have at least one thing that we either consciously or unconsciously value that we can let go of. We can stop abiding in that measure. What we abide in impacts our growth. So let some of those things go. Still do them and care about them for sure. It's a good thing to invest time in school and sport and job and family and all those things I listed. All I'm trying to say is that it is worth being careful that those things don't overly define our lives. Our value is in something much more significant. After encouraging letting go of the false self, Nouwen gives some hints at what it might take to abide well. His path toward abiding with God comes down to solitude, silence, and prayer. He bases it all on the examples of those desert monks in early Christianity, but I also think it happens to be the path that Paul took, and Jesus for that matter. All these figures sought to escape the compulsions of the world and remeasure their lives in faithful ways. So it starts with solitude, the kind of solitude Jesus found in the wilderness, which we talked about just a couple of weeks ago here, that Paul found while blinded, and that the desert monks found away from society. In each of these expressions of solitude, there was an experience of conversion, where the old self, the self tied to those false measurements, that old self dies and a new self is born. I'm aware that solitude can be a scary word, especially as we enter year three of a pandemic that's prohibited a lot of gatherings. But now it does not mean that we are to be totally alone. He admits most of us are not going to become monks. So he puts it this way. He says, the very first thing we need to do is set apart a time and a place to be with God alone. That simple. The specifics will differ for each person based on our needs and availability, but it still must be some concrete way to cut through our busy lives. And then he adds to that silence and prayer, by which he means not just thinking about and talking to God, but rather being with God treasuring God and offering the fullness of who we are 
in relationship with God. The point of this is not to accomplish anything or even to begin identifying ourselves as great prayers because that's just another false self. The point is to be with God, abide with God, even if it's just a brief moment of the day because that brief moment might just blossom out to something beautiful that we can then experience in all the things that we do. By setting aside time to be with God, we begin measuring ourselves in a way that affirms our true self, our beloved self, the same self Paul found in Christ. And then we can build on that true self by doing things like giving our time to care for others. Paul certainly did that. His care for the church in Philippi is the whole reason we have this letter to the Philippians that we read from. The letter is evidence of his version of calling and checking in on his community. And we can also call people and offer that care. In fact, that's our challenge for this week, to call someone from our community, check in how they're doing. But I hope even with that, we are careful that we don't begin to value ourselves on how well people feel because we checked in on them, or how many we were able to check in on. The point is not to accomplish something for that false self, but to abide with someone for supporting our true self. And the last thing I'll add is what I think is the real good news in all of this, that God abides with us no matter what. That is the promise of grace. God abides with us in whatever crowd we are with, in whatever decisions we have made. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love, which means God is always abiding with us. The trick is that there's still freedom to grow in whichever way we may go, because God's abiding is an open hand, not a set of handcuffs. So God is with us right there in everything. We just have to use God as our support for growth. And because God is with us in all things, we can grow with God and abide with God in everything we do through our daily lives. So maybe if Christ's death and resurrection is our measuring rod for identity, as it came to be for Paul, we might just grow along with Christ. If that overwhelming expression of grace is how we define our lives, I think we will be able to abide with God and one another so much better. And through that new life, we might grow into something that is peaceful and free and valuable through all the world. Thanks be to God for abiding with us. Would you pray with me? Oh God, help us to let go of those measures in our life that do not lead to abiding with you and help us to cling closely to your love so that we may grow fully as your beloved children. In your holy name I pray.